passage this morning is once again taken from the gospel according to Luke. Uh, This morning we'll be looking at Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 13. Luke 11, verses 5 to 13. And they said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, we praise You for the privilege of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the fact that though we were rebels, we were enemies against you, against your kingdom. Lord God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through his life and death and resurrection, through his sacrifice, Lord, we have the privilege of prayer and we have been made sons. We have been adopted as your sons. Lord, you have called us into your presence. And so, Lord, we praise you as your adopted sons and daughters that you would hear our prayers. Lord, that you would forgive us for our prayerless prayers. Lord, that you would forgive us for our half-hearted and weak and unbelieving prayers. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for our selfish prayers. We pray that you would forgive us for our utter lack of prayer. Father, I pray that you would make us a praying people. Help us all, Lord, to understand who you are and who we are before you. That you bid us come with with boldness, with persistence, with confidence, knowing that you will hear us because of who you are and because of who we are through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are now entering the Christmas season. I won't mention any names, but there is one family among us who's been there for over a month already, and you know who you are. For some people, though, Christmas brings dread. For some people, they 
hate the idea of Christmas because of bad memories, because of all sorts of things that are attached to it. But again, there are others for whom Christmas brings happiness and joy. And there are perhaps none who anticipate Christmas as much as children, at least in our household. But many children at this time of year have their thoughts consumed with Santa Claus. And some will even import their ideas of who God is. This this idea of Santa Claus that will make them think that God is like Santa Claus. Some adults, even many adults, will have this wrong understanding. They see God like Santa Claus, a jolly grandfatherly figure whose whole reason for existence is to serve you. But there is another equally dangerous caricature of God that we can also fall into, that of a far less likable but also prominent character during the Christmas season. Ebenezer Scrooge, the miserly curmudgeon who is the chief character in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. He is the polar opposite, no pun intended, he is the polar opposite of Santa Claus. Scrooge is everything that Santa Claus isn't. He is selfish, he is aloof, he is harsh. Both are are common misrepresentations of God. On the one hand, you have Santa Claus who gives you whatever you want. On the other is Scrooge who only gives what can be pried out of his tightly clenched fists. I wonder, do you fall into either one of those views? And sometimes even Scripture is used to reinforce these popular misconceptions. Even perhaps especially the passage before us this morning. What do you think Luke chapter 11 verses 5 to 13 says about God? Now your answer here is vitally important. May your answer here be truly biblically based. What comes into your mind when you think about God? How do you think of God? Again, do you think of him as some stingy, detached deity, or do you think of him instead of as more of a a kindly, soft grandpa? A.W. Tozer says, said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And one of the things that most clearly reveals your view of God is your prayer life. We can have all kinds of, of theological constructions about God. We can have all kinds of, of ideas that, about God that even can be right and, be, and, and biblical, but the way we pray shows whether we believe those things to be true or not, whether we really believe these things to be true. Do you really believe that prayer is essential? Do you really believe that God answers prayer? Do you believe that God is revealing yourself to you in prayer and he's commanding you to pray and he's promising that he will hear your prayers and that he will answer your prayers? As you saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus tells us a great deal in reminding us to pray 
Father, hallowed be your name at the beginning of what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, which I explained is, is more accurately entitled the, the model prayer or the pattern prayer as it provides us not really with a, a prayer to be repeated verbatim, but with a pattern to follow. And so in reminding us to pray, Father, hallowed be your name, Jesus is showing us who we are praying to. He's also showing us what our priority should be in prayer and that we are utterly dependent on God for all things. And so we pray to God, praying first of all that His name be hallowed and that His kingdom come. And then from the Sermon on the Mount, that God's will be done. And then moving on from there to, to pray for, for our needs our physical needs, our need for forgiveness, and our need for protection, we are committing ourselves to God in prayer, to our Father in prayer. We're committing ourselves and, and all of our, the needs of our, our loved ones, our church family, and our brothers and sisters around the world. We're committing it all to Him. And so Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 13, is, is really a continuation of what Jesus has just said about prayer. Prayer is central to Luke's gospel account, and prayer is central to our lives as Christians. So again, with Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, Jesus taught his disciples what to pray, and now in verses 5 to 13, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. So Jesus is giving us a pattern that we can follow, and he now has given us a pattern to follow, and now he focuses on the attitude that we should have in prayer. Again, he's told us what to pray for. Now he's telling us how to pray. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Then listen carefully to the Lord's teaching on prayer. In this passage, he's going to give us a parable and an ensuing principle. And in both cases, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And we'll see at the end, he's going to argue then from the greater to the lesser. So first of all, in verses 5 to 8, we'll see the parable of the impudent friend. And then in verses 9 and 10, the application of that is therefore go to God with boldness. And then the, the principle, verses 11 and 12, the principle of evil fathers and then the application in verse 13, therefore, go to your heavenly Father with confidence. So again, in this passage, we, we learn persistence in prayer and we learn confidence in prayer because of who we are praying to. Persistence in prayer and confidence in prayer. So first of all, verses 5 to 8, the parable of the bold friend. Jesus continues his teaching on prayer with it with his parable, one that is recorded only in Luke. And Jesus presents this parable in the form of a question, verses 5 to 7. Let me read it for us. The disciples and we are, are to put ourselves into this situation. He says, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you 
anything. So again, the disciples and we are to put ourselves into this situation. A, a friend on a journey comes to you in the middle of the night. Traveling during the night was common practice in that culture. It was, it was cooler and, and easier to travel at night. Now, the hospitable thing to do when your guest arrives at the, in the middle of the night is to provide him with a meal. But you don't have anything to offer him. The cupboard is bare. Now, hospitality is a very important thing in Middle Eastern culture. It's important in ours, but it's far more important in, in that culture. I experienced amazing hospitality repeatedly during my, my trip to Israel during seminary from Jew and Muslim alike. From the, the Palestinian man who brought me to Hebron to the kibbutz in Bethlehem where I showed up on Christmas Eve unannounced to the family who hosted me at Mount Carmel. People I'd never met before went to great efforts to show me hospitality. Again, this, this reflects what has been true in that culture for, for millennia. In that culture, a, a lack of hospitality was and is viewed as, as, a, um, as reflecting badly on the entire community. So when your friend shows up at midnight, it's very important to provide for him. So what are you going to do? It's not like you can duck out to the 7-Eleven. And then it comes to your mind, oh, I'll go to my neighbor's house. He's my friend. This request is founded on friendship. He's always been willing to help before. But this is the middle of the night. You don't want to wake him and you don't certainly don't want to wake his family. So, so what are you going to do? Well, you decide to choose between the lesser of the evils. You walk over to your friend's house and, and call out to him, explaining your predicament, and you ask him for three loaves of bread. Now, now the loaves would have been small loaves, kind of more like bread rolls. And, and you're not being greedy. This, is, this isn't a feast. This is, this is enough to feed one man's hungry stomach. You aren't being selfish. You're really motivated by hospitality. Well, your neighbor, who's half awakened and perhaps understandably annoyed, replies, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My, my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Whole families in that culture would often live really in a one-room house and, and the whole family would sleep on one mat on the floor. And were he to, to get up and to, to provide and to unlatch the door, and he would wake up his whole family. Now our daughter Vivian ends up in our bed through the night. And when I, I get up in the morning, I have to take great pains to extricate myself from the bed so as not to wake her up. If I wake her up, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to wake everyone up. Or she's going to wake everyone up. Let's just say I'm not doing very well in that regard. I did manage to do it yesterday, but I'm, I'm way less than 500 on this. It's a funny picture, but, but stuff like this happens. And I mean, maybe you can relate. Somebody reaches out to you with some need when it's inconvenient. Maybe even in the middle of the night. 
But what are you going to do? Well, I hope you would help. But remember, this parable is not about how you would respond. In this parable, you are the one who is in need. Somewhere between verses 7 and 8, your neighbor changes his mind. He agrees to get up and help you and to give you what you need. Now, hear this. He isn't helping you because he's your friend. He's helping you because of your impudence. He isn't helping you because of the prior relationship you have. He's, he's, he's helping you because of your boldness. And we've had a situation where, where somebody would, would call or, or show up in the, in the middle of the night, someone we don't even really know. And in my flesh, I get annoyed. But because of their impotence, I'll help them. The word that's translated impudence here is, it, it, it's only here in this, in this one verse in the entire Bible. It essentially describes audacity, um, impertinence, or shamelessness. And the focus here is on the, the boldness or the nerve of the request. So the point is that, that if even, even if being a friend and a neighbor isn't enough, shameless persistence succeeds. So then let's look at the application of the parable in verses 9 and 10. Therefore, go to God with boldness. Jesus says in verse 9, I ask you, sorry, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And then he repeats this in verse 10. And when Jesus repeats himself like this, this is like a way of putting an exclamation mark at the end of the sentence. He's making a very clear point and strong point. Verse 10, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now these are three present tense imperative verbs. This is a command to continual prayer. Ask, seek, knock. And each successive verb intensifies the previous one. Again, ask, seek, knock. Do you ask, seek, and knock in prayer? Do you continually ask, seek and knock in prayer? Or rather, are your prayers cold? Maybe just a vain repetition of the same things you pray all the time. Or are your prayers infrequent? If your prayers are cold and infrequent, you've forgotten the importance of persistence in prayer. Have you given up on praying for something? Well, the reality is you either don't really want it that badly, or you don't believe that God can give it to you. You've forgotten the benefit of prayer. It's often a, a matter of, of laziness or unbelief or both. Brothers and sisters, no matter how weak your prayers feel, you are praying to a strong God. You are praying to the all-powerful God. Just think of some of the commands in Scripture regarding prayer. The Bible commands you and me to pray always and not lose heart, Luke 18.1. To be constant in prayer, Romans 12.12. 12, 12. To continue steadfastly in prayer, Colossians 4.2. To pray without ceasing, 
1 Thessalonians 5.17. You get the point. Pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. But even if an annoyed neighbor will respond to the bold request, you can certainly be bold and persistent in making your requests to God. But this is where people often start to go wrong. They wrongly conclude that this passage is teaching that God will not answer you unless you are persistent in prayer. But realize that in this parable, God is contrasted with the annoyed friend. We must be persistent in prayer. But if God doesn't answer right away, it doesn't mean that we twist God's arm behind his back with our persistent prayers. God is nothing like Ebenezer Scrooge. This passage is teaching that God wants to answer your prayers, that God is eager to answer your prayers. God is eager to give to you. God is more eager to give to you than you are eager to pray. So Jesus is arguing here from the lesser to the greater. If even a friend woken in the middle of the night will get past his annoyance and help someone, help a friend in need, certainly God will answer the bold prayers of those who are his friends. privilege of prayer has been purchased for you by the blood of Christ. You were God's enemy, but Jesus Christ was willingly punished in your place because he was treated as God's enemy. You have become God's friend. And so go boldly and persistently to God in prayer. For God, there is no middle of the night. For God, there is no waking up. God never sleeps. For God, there is no annoyance at bold and persistent prayer. God is omniscient and God is omnipotent. God can focus on all the prayers of all of his people offered up at the same time as though they were the only person praying to him in that very moment. And God is able to answer all of those prayers while holding the cosmos together with the word of his power. He does so without expending any effort whatsoever. But if God is omniscient and God is omnipotent, why do we pray? We touched on this last week. If prayer is effective, asks John MacArthur, how can God still be absolutely sovereign? Do you see the apparent paradox here? Well, his answer is, I don't know. He says, this is one of the great paradoxes of Scripture that tells me, again, that God's mind is infinitely beyond my own. He says, once you have decided that you can accept the fact of prayer even 
to the predeterminate God is valid and vital. The right attitude towards prayer is achieved. E. Stanley Jones describes his understanding of how prayer changes things. He says, if I am in a boat and I throw a boat hook to the shore and I start to pull on the rope, I'm not moving the land towards the boat, I'm moving the boat towards the land. He says that that prayer is not pulling God to my will, but aligning my will to that of God. Well, is he right? Is that all prayer is, molding my will to God's? Well, on the other end of the spectrum, I've heard it said that prayer is the slender nerve that moves the mighty hand of God. Well, is that right? Is that is that what prayer is? Me moving God. I believe both emphasize aspects of what happens when we pray. The latter is actually a misquote from C.H. Spurgeon, who, who said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. And so here you get a better sense of what prayer really is. And you see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Don't be hyper-Calvinistic. Don't focus only on God's sovereignty without considering man's responsibility. Likewise, don't be Arminian or semi-Pelagian by focusing solely on man's responsibility. The scripture teaches both. Again, it's an apparent paradox, but we embrace both because scripture teaches both. Even if we can't in our finite minds put both pieces together. Don't focus only on God's sovereignty without considering man's responsibility. God invites you to pray. God commands you to pray. God is omnipotent, but God has given you the privilege of prayer. God has foreordained everything that will happen in his creation. And he has also decreed that in his omnipotence, he will act in response to your prayers. Yet, God has also commanded and foreordained that you pray. Evangelism provides a helpful parallel here. God has decreed every single person who will come to saving faith in Him. He's also decreed He's also decreed that he will save souls through the proclamation of the gospel. Yet God also commanded and foreordained that you preach the gospel. And God has also commanded and foreordained that the elect will repent. So like evangelism, when you pray, you are fulfilling your sacred duty to participate in what God is doing in the world. But again, this is where people start to go wrong. They, they conclude again that God will not answer you unless you're persistent in prayer. But that's not the case. God does not answer you on the basis of your perfect prayers because you have no perfect prayers. It's not as if you can be persistent enough and then, and then okay, God will, will answer you. God answers your prayers on the basis of Jesus Christ of His sacrifice. The fact that Jesus Christ is actually interceding for you. 
And the Holy Spirit is interceding for you, even though you don't know what to pray. You don't know how to pray as you ought, but the Spirit is interceding for you with groanings too deep for words. And we'll see a parallel when we get to Luke chapter 18 with the parable of the persistent widow and the unrighteous judge. The widow seeks justice from the unrighteous judge. Let's, let's turn there for a moment. Let's turn to Luke chapter 18. Verse 1. Notice that he told this parable to the effect that they ought to pray always and not lose heart. Jesus is telling this parable so that people will, won't give up in prayer. Now, look at the, the first character we see is this, this certain judge. And, and this judge is not a very good judge. He neither fears God nor respects man. And this widow kept on coming to him again and again and again for justice. And he says, no, 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 no. But this unrighteous judge will eventually give her justice. Not because he have, he's all of a sudden become righteous, but because, verse 5, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Again, Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. How much more will God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? He will give them justice speedily. There's an important lesson for us in that. When it comes to the perceived injustices that you see around you, do you get anxious about them? Do you get upset about them? Or do you pray boldly and persistently about them? We see this so clearly in our present situation. Some people are concerned about the risks of COVID. And others are concerned about the government response to COVID. When it comes to COVID, whichever side of it you're on, do you go to God persistently in prayer? Do you really believe that God is just? And that God will give justice to His elect? Do you really believe that God will give what He deems to be justice in His timing and in His measure? Or are you fighting a spiritual battle with carnal weapons? If you're fighting a spiritual battle using carnal weapons, you will find out that you've actually been fighting for the wrong side. Have you been persistent in prayer? Or, or do you put certain prayers into the, the too hard basket? Have you given up on praying for that unbelieving family member? Have you neglected to play, pray for an, an easing of government restrictions and for the salvation of our elected officials? It's unbelief. I've been reading through the, the book of, of Esther this past week. Let's just turn there for a moment because I believe this, is, this provides a, hel a helpful illustration. 
book of Esther. Let's go to chapter 6. probably very familiar with with the book of of Esther, but let me refresh you for a moment. Set the context that the wicked Haman is so angry with Mordecai that he determines to hang him on a 75-foot-tall gallows to kill him. And not only that, he, he asks King Ahasuerus, to issue a decree to annihilate all of the Jews in the kingdom. But look at Esther 6.1. King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. Now I've been talking to a friend who's battling insomnia. It is really debilitating. But this bout of insomnia was redemptive. The king asked that the book of the memorable deeds be read to him. And so as this book was read to him, he discovered that Mordecai, the same Mordecai who was about to be killed by Haman, had actually uncovered a plot against the king. And so Ahasuerus asked what had, to be, what had been done to honor Mordecai. Nothing. Nothing had been done to honor Mordecai for saving the life of the king. And then at that very moment, Haman enters the court to ask permission from the king to hang Mordecai. But before he can get that out, the king says to Haman, well, he asks Haman, what should be done to honor the man that the king delights to honor? And so Mordecai lists these things, and then, or sorry, Haman lists these things, and then the king says, I want all of those things to be done for Mordecai. I want you to do them for Mordecai. I want you to put the royal robes on Mordecai. I want you to put Mordecai on the king's horse. I want you to put the royal crown on Mordecai's head. And then Esther came before the king, which would have gotten her killed, or could have gotten her killed since she had not been summoned before the king. But she came before the king to ask for her life and for the lives of the Jews. Then Esther exposed Haman and his villainy. There's a lot more to this story. I I would recommend that you go and read it with your family today. This This is an amazing story of God's providence. But were all of these events just a coincidence? Did the king just happen to have a bout of insomnia? Did he just happen to ask for the book of the memorable deeds to be read to him? Did he just happen, did Haman just happen to enter the court at that very moment? What brought all of these deeds to pass? Now the name of God is not explicitly mentioned in the whole book of Esther, but God is there throughout. God's providence is clearly here. God is clearly answering the prayers of his people. Turn back to the end of chapter 4. To the end of chapter 4, verse 16, where Esther gives instructions to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. 
I and my young women will fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther has requested that the people fast and pray. God really answers prayer. Is Esther's God your God? Do you go to him in bold prayer? Do you go to him in persistent prayer? Now we as your elders have requested that you pray earnestly regarding this current situation. Now what that is going to look like in your family might be different from, from person to person and family to family. We've, we've asked that if possible you'd consider joining with us in prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting is, a, is an example of bold and persistent prayer. How seriously are you praying for our current circumstances? God is more willing to help you than any friend you have on earth. God is more eager to bless you than you are to be blessed. Do you go to God, your friend? Pray boldly and pray persistently and leave the results to Him. Well now, very briefly, let's consider the principle that can be drawn from this. The principle that can be drawn from this. Verses 11 and 12, the principle of evil fathers. Jesus here shifts to another metaphor, intensifying His point, moving from an awakened friend to a father with his child. What father among you, verse 11, what father among you, if, he, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Notice that the focus has gone from the one making the request to the one to whom the request has been made. It started out with a focus on the bold friend, and moved to the friend who had been awakened, and now the focus is clearly on the one to whom the request is made, to fathers. Human fathers give their children what they need. What father will give his children something harmful when food is requested? If your child asks for a fish burger, you aren't going to give him a snake sandwich. If he asks you for an egg, you aren't going to give him a scorpion sunny side up. Think about it. When your, your child calls out to you from bed for the umpteenth time, Daddy, can I have a cup of water? What are you going to do? Give him a cup of vinegar? What mean person, let alone a parent, would give a thirsty child a cup of vinegar instead of water? I know one. I've repented. Now finally, the application of the principle. Verse 13. Therefore, go to your heavenly Father with confidence. Therefore, go to your heavenly Father with confidence. If you then, verse 13 says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? 
Once again, Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. If evil fathers give, give good gifts to their children, God is contrasted with evil fathers. And God is therefore contrasted with all fathers because all fathers ultimately are not good. No, not one. We are all sinful. Even the most godly and faithful fathers among us are sinful. Again, you can't let your own experiences of, uh, with even the most godly fathers or, or, or the, certainly the most ungodly of fathers dictate your presuppositions about who God is as your father. No matter how positive or negative your earthly your experience with your earthly father, inform yourself instead from Scripture as to who God is as your father. Go to your father in prayer. Go to your father confidently in prayer. Regularly, daily, and throughout the day, talk to him, praise him, thank him, bring your needs before him, and those of your brothers and sisters as well. Your heavenly father is seeking intimate relationship with you. So go to him. Ask. Seek. Knock. But this brings us to another area that people often get wrong about who God is. They think of God as Santa Claus, whose entire purpose is to give them what they want. And so their their prayers are selfish. They are self-centered. It's all about me, 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 me. Again, you find out about what you really think about who God is when you are on your knees in prayer. Many people wrongly think that God wants to give you your best life now. They wrongly think that God wants to make their lives easy, that that He wants to make them rich and to never let anything painful happen to them. This is heresy. This is the the so-called prosperity gospel, which though we would, I hope, reject, we can easily fall into that kind of thinking, especially in our prosperous Western culture. So our prayers today, we focus on, on avoiding pain. They're not centered on, as we talked about earlier from in the model prayer about hallowing God's name and seeking the advance of his kingdom and and submitting our will to his. This this command to go boldly and confidently before God in in prayer is, is not a blank check. This is not a promise that God is going to give you whatever you want, whenever you want it. For sometimes, sometimes God answers with a no. Sometimes God answers with a not yet. For 15 years, I prayed earnestly for a wife. And through that whole time, I didn't know whether the answer was no or not yet. But, and this is important, somewhere along the way, I realized that I must seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, trusting that God would give me whatever I needed for His glory and my good. So even in the delayed response to my prayer, which which God answered gloriously, and I'm very, very thankful for, for his answer to my prayer, 
But even in the delayed answer to my prayer, God was working. God was sanctifying me. God was helping me to grow in contentment while I persisted in prayer. And God was helping me to grow in confidence as I learned who He is, that He is sufficient. Even if God never provided me with a wife, that God would still be good. God would still be enough. What is it that you have been praying for? And maybe you've been praying earnestly. Maybe this is a, a real and, and biblical and, and important need. And Are you seeking first God's kingdom and God's righteousness? In James 4.2, the, the apostle explains, you do not have because you do not ask. But he continues in verse 3 with a warning. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so sometimes even asking for good things, what God's word would would define as good things, can be done with selfishness. With no thoughts to hallowing God's name or advancing his kingdom or seeking his will be done. As we saw in the model prayer, praying biblically means seeking the glory of God's name, the advance of his kingdom and being submitted to his will. Sometimes again, the answer is no, because God has a better plan. That might be painful, but it will certainly be for your good and his glory. We can apply that to this whole COVID situation. Even if at one end of the extreme, you end up dying because of COVID. Or at the other extreme, if you end up in a concentration camp because of government responses, government crackdowns. Now, I think very likely that for the the vast majority of people, the, the truth is much closer to here. But are you seeking first God's kingdom and God's glory? Are you seeking to submit your will to God? Are you trusting who God is in the midst of, of this situation or, or whatever crisis, whatever situation you face in life? These are opportunities for you to take stock and stop and consider who God is in the midst of this. Not relying on yourself and, and on, on your means and and what you want, but but entrusting yourself to Him, being confident that He really is your Father and He's not going to give you something bad. Even Even if it means you die. He's your Father. You can trust Him. This was our Lord's prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in, in Matthew 26, 39. We prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I don't know about you, but I'm extremely thankful that God did not answer that prayer in the affirmative. We'll be eternally thankful for the fact that God the Father did not let that cup pass from Jesus Christ so that he could become the sin bearer for us, that he could drink the cup of wrath that you and I deserve. 
This was the Apostle Paul's attitude in 2 Corinthians 12 when he persistently sought the Lord to remove the thorn from his flesh. What was Jesus' reply? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Verse 9. Now, I've heard people say that God will not give you anything that you can't handle. You can't handle anything on your own. And neither can I. That's why we go to God daily for all of our needs, also as Jesus instructed in the model prayer. Again, this is not a blank check, but it is something infinitely better. So what does God, as our Father, promise to give us? Look at the end of verse 13. How much more How much more will the Heavenly Father give His Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? How much more will your Heavenly Father give, your, give His Holy Spirit to you? As Joel Green explains, the superiority of the fatherhood of God is realized in the superiority of His gift. God has promised to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Listen to J.C. Ryle. The Holy Spirit is beyond doubt the greatest gift which God can bestow upon man. Having this gift, we have all things. Light and life and hope and heaven. Having this gift, we have God the Father's boundless love. Having this God the Son's atoning blood and full communion with all three persons of the Blessed Trinity. Having this gift, we have grace and peace in the world that now is, glory and honor in the world to come. And yet, this mighty gift is held out by our Lord Jesus Christ as a gift to be obtained by prayer. Your Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. The Holy Spirit is the source of our regeneration, but the Holy Spirit is also the source of our sanctification. As the Holy Spirit empowers us to do that which is pleasing in God's sight, He changes our desires. He makes us grow slowly, maybe, but inexorably into the image of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the source of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control all come from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is guiding you into truth. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the inheritance that is yours in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit, as I mentioned earlier, intercedes for you. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you even right now. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit indwells us. You and I have a member of the Trinity indwelling us. Because of the gracious gift of God our Father. So you see that Jesus is now arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God is going to give us the greatest of all gifts, our Father is going, our Heavenly Father is going to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit, then certainly He can be trusted to give us lesser gifts and everything. You understand that, don't you? Everything that you receive 
is a lesser gift, an infinitely lesser gift than the gift of God's Holy Spirit. So you can trust God with everything. You can go to God with great confidence because He has given you His Holy Spirit. Because He is your Father through the sacrificial atoning death of His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus Christ was raised on the third day for our justification, we can be confident that God will also, that we will also be raised by the Spirit on that day. By understanding that God is your heavenly Father and that He gives you the greatest of all gifts, you know that you can trust Him with everything that you need. And so you are invited to ask, seek, and knock. You're invited to come to God boldly, persistently, confidently. Yes, God is infinitely holy and infinitely above the entire cosmos. But God is also intimately your heavenly Father. God is caring for us, His children. God is not Santa and God is not Scrooge. He is our heavenly Father. He is eager to give good gifts to His children. He is eager to give good gifts to you. Again, God is more eager to bless you even than you are eager to be blessed. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you for your overflowing generosity. That out of your great love, you would send your son to die for our sin. And out of your great love, you have given us your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to be mindful of who you are. Help us, Lord, to be motivated by your glory and your kingdom and your will. And then, Lord, help us to pray. Help us to pray for these things. And, Lord, may all of our prayers be informed and guided, directed by this supreme priority. So, Lord, we do pray that you would change our hearts in prayer. And Lord, we do pray that you would work in response to our prayers. That you would be glorified in us. That your kingdom would be advanced in us. 
that we will submit to your will. And Lord, that it won't be just in us, but through us. We pray this for our good. And ultimately, for the glory of your name.